today's reading is from the NIV translation and is Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And spoiler alert, you guys have already sang this today. So this, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, everybody, as is the case, in the way that we do church here and the late Western modernity of America. We've got our coffee, we've got our smiles, we've got our greetings, we've got our songs sung, and now it's time to get into the traditional sermon. We're beginning a new series today. I just want to invite you all to join me in taking in a breath into our body, and just breathe in, eyes closed. And um, as best you can, now just tell the Lord under your breath or just quietly, I just, I want to hear from you, my King, my Creator. Just tell him. Don't tell him what you want. Ask him what he wants. The sermon and the way that we do church here in the West uh, is an important place in the body and the life of a people group in that it communicates a whole vision and unites us in mind. And so, Spirit of God, I come. I ask that you'd speak the exact same thing to each one of us today that you would mind meld us in that sense that we would be given the mind of Jesus Christ. And as we begin our journey this fall into prayer, I ask that we would be a people of prayer. But even more, Lord, I began praying a month ago that you would answer these children's prayers concretely. I know it's a Gideon's fleece, and I don't apologize for it, Lord. You know exactly what every single one of these people need. You know what I need. We're not asking you to prove yourself. We're not testing you. But like little kids, we're just saying, please answer some concrete prayers for us through this season where we would step away and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This this prayer thing is real. The maker of the universe, the one who spread a trillion stars and names each one of them, listens to me, hears me, and responds to me. Merciful Father, please answer your people's prayers that we might be inflamed with prayer become all prayer, become all fire in the Spirit. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, bit of a unique morning all the way through at this point. Uh, We're listening to the Holy Spirit, praying for people, but the teaching this morning is going to be just a tad bit different as well. We're not going to get to introduce the Lord's Prayer until the back half of this. I really thought it would be important. It's fall time. Everybody's coming back from traveling. All the kids are getting back into school. And so everybody's beginning to regather for the fall. But we are working off of sort of year-long blocks to consistently give vision, to call us all to mission. We're working on a four-year cycle, really, in the big term picture in my mind. And so I thought it would be really beneficial this morning with everybody here, new people here, that we would look back at where we've been through 2023 and look forward to where we're going through 2023 as we approach 2024. So what I want to do is always keep, it's so important for us as a community, that we keep the larger picture 
that we don't lose the entirety of the forest of what we're doing here at this church for the little trees that we can begin to focus on. And we have some core practices that we are implementing over a four-year cycle. We have teachings that interweave with those core practices that unite us and define who we are. So right here at the outset of the fall, I want us to remember the underlying reasons why we study what we study, which books we study, the themes and topics that we study, and I want us to remember why we do what we do as a community. So how's about a little bit of a fall term exam? Everybody ready for that? For those of you that have been here for the whole year, a little bit of a fall term exam. Let's see what we can remember about this last year. Okay. We decided that we are laboring towards two postures, two postures in 2023. Can anybody name what those two postures, 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 postures through 2023, what are they? Gold star class. Oh, man, that makes me so happy to hear so many of you actually just say it. It locked in. This year, we decided in prayer that the Holy Spirit wanted to create a community whose posture, whose disposition, whose sort of space and place in life and in the world was rest as a way of being. Not rest that we collapse into, not rest that we hope for and just kind of fall into, exhausted out of our minds, but actually a people of non-anxious presence, a people of deep peace that surpasses understanding, a people of true rest as our way of being, as well as resilience as a way of doing. Going out into a world that is opposing us, going out into systems and situations that break us down to become a people where resilience, moving forward, not just tightening up your bootlaces, but moving forward in the strength of the Spirit is actually the way that we do things. So we're doing this because we believe that modern Christians face two primary and very challenging opponents. There are two things for you as a modern Christian that are robbing you of joy and your growth. They're stunting and trying to trip up your faithfulness and your fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. Exhaustion and cynicism. Exhaustion and cynicism. All of us oftentimes are dealing with a low-grade fatigue, and we're dealing with a low-grade fatigue, and that low-grade exhaustion slowly begins to eat away at what we call our vim and vigor, our energy, our desire, our hopes, our dreams, our doings. Eventually, that vim and vigor giving way to exhaustion and that low-grade fatigue creates cycles of cynical thinking, hopelessness, despair, despondency. Those are all things that are deforming our humanity in the eyes of God. Those are all things that are actually drags on our souls. And as we get more tired, more despondent, more despairing, more pessimistic, more cynical about this and that and everything, then we get more tired. And we then give in to more cynicism. The more tired we get, the more grumpy we get. It is this hamster wheel which modern Westerners cannot get off of. There are a thousand factors that are contributing to and exacerbating this low-grade fatigue that you're dealing with this morning. There are a thousand justifiable factors that are causing this embittered cynicism as we look out on the world of politics and authority and war and suffering and injustice. And in our current moment, those forces, friends, are only going to get stronger. This isn't going to get easier, just so everybody knows. The political conversation, friends, it's not going to get calmer this next year. I can 1,000% promise you. It's not going to get easier. Now, Sir Isaac, Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, excuse me, the great astronomer physicist, which by the way, did you guys know that R Newton wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation? Did you guys know that? 
He was a devout Christian. He stated in his third law of motion, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So our two postures that we're developing through this year, they're the equal and opposite reaction to the forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil that are robbing God's people. Okay, so by way of remembering class, uh, what anchor practice did we introduce at the first of the year to make rest our way of being? Sabbath. That one wasn't as confident. You guys weren't as confident in that one. That's right. Sabbath. So how is Sabbath going for all of you? How many of you have begun trying to practice some semblance, at least given an intellectual nod to Sabbath? Good. Okay, good. How many of you are actually trying to practice Sabbath? Oh, this is excellent. Good. Okay. So we spent the entire month of March at the beginning of 2023. We gathered at Communion Church. We ate food. And then we were trained in the practice of Sabbath. So every seventh day, as a church community, we cease, we stop, we, work, we stop work. And we, the Hebrew word is Shabbat. We literally cease work. We spend 24 hours delighting, resting, and contemplating God together as a means of resisting the hustle and the burnout culture of this moment, as a means of reposturing ourselves against the grind and getting off of the hamster wheel. And we do all this as an act of cohesive obedience as a community together. Now, as Gentiles, this is important. We are not law-keeping Jews. We are not law-keeping Jews. We don't keep the Sabbath to be saved like the Jews of Jesus' day did. Instead, we practice Sabbath to embody the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You are as forgiven and as loved and as accepted and as pure and as holy as you will ever be because Christ absorbed the wounds of your sin and has raised from the grave. You are forever forgiven and accepted and made white and clean and holy and good and true. And so Sabbath is 24 hours to lay down all the labors of religious effort, all the insecurities, and say, I'm just going to embody this love. I'm just going to rest in this. I'm just going to rejoice in this. That's how we, as gospel-saved Christians, practice Sabbath. So we are making rest our way of being. And I, and I want you to understand that if Sabbath is something that's new to you, if you're unfamiliar with that language, it is literally woven into the fabric of this community from the very beginning. And so if you're unfamiliar with it, grab somebody that's been around here for more than a year. They will begin to teach you about what Sabbath is, why we practice Sabbath, how Sabbath works in our community. So as we make rest our way of being, out of that rest becomes this resilience that I'm utterly persuaded God's people are going to need more than ever in our future a resilient way of doing, and that's to resist or reposture ourselves against the, the hypercynicism of this cultural moment. Resilience is a way of doing. So to posture ourselves, to resist, to counterform our souls against the cynicism of our day, we decided to listen to the most cynical guy in the history of all thought leaders ever. <laughs> you guys remember the book of Ecclesiastes? Okay, there's this king, and he went by the term or the title Koheleth. Koheleth, you guys remember that? Say Koheleth. Koheleth, good. Bible scholars, all of you. Koheleth was a jaded, philosophical, deconstructing muse. He was there writing out his deconstruction process as he was questioning the traditions and the faith ideals of his faith community that he had been raised in, and he was the chief of cynics. And so what we did with the book of Ecclesiastes for six full months was we would gather week by week and we would listen to the questions that Koheleth was asking and we would listen to the frustrations that Koheleth was expressing and we would observe the deconstruction that Koheleth was doing and we would say, geez, that sounds just like me. Though ancient, 
he was very, very modern in the way that he wrote and in the way that he think, thought. And so as we worked our way through Ecclesiastes, we found ourselves with Koheleth asking, what is life all about? What does any of this mean? Is there purpose to any of this? Is what I'm doing right now, does it matter? Friends, from that place, resilience, resilience is born out of knowing your meaning and purpose. Those that survived Auschwitz, those that survived the deepest points of suffering, we know psychologically they survived because they had meaning and purpose that was driving them through that. As the future comes upon us, as the days may get darker, they may not, but as they may get darker and people get more distraught, you and I are going to need to know that we have meaning and purpose in the midst of it. And so resilience is filled by a hope that there is a better way to live, there are better days ahead, that what we're doing right now actually does matter, and that it will matter forever. So, so many of you came up to me during that series and after that series and literally said, Koheleth changed my life. Koheleth revived my Christianity. It was this weird, ironic thing where you were like deeply cynical, deconstructing, and then you go listening to somebody deconstructing that God gives us in the Bible, and you're like, okay, deconstruction done. Time to reconstruct. Time to begin to walk in faith. Very, very powerful book. You guys can hit the podcast up for those teachings. All right, where did we go after Koheleth? Does anybody remember? Tougher question, class. Tougher question. Where did we go at the beginning of the summer? First John. To become what? A community of love. So at the beginning of the summer, we launched into this series uh, through the series uh, through John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, where we were developing this idea of becoming a community of love. Humanity is hardwired. We are hardwired theologically, spiritually. We are even hardwired biophysically to live in community, intimate community with each other. We cannot survive, much less thrive, without each other. We believe here at Neighbors that this rest is a way of being it comes out of a sense of security and acceptance and love with an intimate community of other humans. We experience the triune security and acceptance and love of God through each other. And this individualistic culture has actually created an epidemic, a modern epidemic of loneliness. And so maturing Christians, we recognize that we will never be able to rest deeply apart from each other. We can only rest in the midst of each other with each other. That rest with each other then creates resilience. Resilience is bolstered by being deeply embedded in a community of mutual support, accountability, and trust. If you're finding, a hard, if you're finding it hard to navigate these days, you might need some guides and friends and brothers and sisters and commit to them to walk with them and talk to them about where you are in your life so that you might resiliently make it through. Beyond that, and maybe even more importantly, in this moment of hyper-individualism and radical autonomy, Christians are recognizing that there is a terrible weakness, and we are learning to rely on each other. We're relearning how to trust each other. We're, like we talked about last week, we have to relearn over and over how to trust authority, how, uh, how to understand each other, how to hear each other, how to listen carefully to who we are with each other. And even more importantly than that, maturing Christians are learning how to be reliable. Remember, the mantle of responsibility is always set on your shoulders. Are you reliable? Are you trustworthy? Are you gentle? Are you kind? Are you somebody that someone will come to and say, I need you in my community? As we journey through the letters of John, we learn that there are true Christian communities and there are false Christian communities. John is actually pretty aggressive in his language throughout all of his books. We learned about how those communities are formed in the name of Jesus, in the truth of Jesus, and then we saw how those communities multiply out into the world as part of God's 
restorative and redemptive purposes. So that's 2023, and that brings us to this morning, and I could not be any more excited about what the Holy Spirit is going to do through the scriptures and in this community through this fall. It's about to get super wild in this place, but it's going to be a gentle wildness. Listen, I've been watching and praying for the renewal and revival of the church in the United States for 25 years, and I'm beginning, some of us as leaders that have been praying for this long, we're beginning to see these little seed beds, and you know, the The language associated with this revival isn't big lights and fog machines and huge crowds. The language is gentleness. There's a softness about Gen Z. You kids just have a softness. I was thinking about this this morning. Like when I was a kid, it was all about toughening up and making sure that you, you know, postured in front of everybody just right. Gen Z, for some reason, is like, why would you do that? Why not just be nice to each other? (laughs) Thank you, Gen Z. I appreciate that. You're right. You're actually right. And it's opening a gateway for the Holy Spirit to come and to gently nurse these wounded cities back to health, to gently nurse our families and to gently care for for people. And that our Father, this prayer that we're now going to spend the next 12 weeks breaking down, we are literally going to just sit in the prayer of Jesus Christ that he gave to his disciples and listen to how God the Holy Spirit would have us pray. So for 12 weeks, we're going to be breaking down this famous prayer. We're going to memorize it prayerfully. We're going to recite it weekly in our liturgy. And then we want to build it into the daily fabric of our current prayer life. And I'll tell you guys how we're going to do that at the end. The other cool thing about this series is you guys know me. I love partnering with the churches in the city as much as possible. This is something I got from Evan and Park Hill. Just like we want to see the church coming together. So for this round, we're partnering with Communion Church. If any of you heard of Communion Church, it uh, uh, begins with a C up there on the with Claremont. Thank you. Uh, We're going to be partnering with them. So they're going through this exact same series while we are. And then, like we said, in October, we're going to introduce a second acre practice for our community. That's the practice of prayer. So in in March, we did Sabbath, rest as a way of being, resilience as a way of doing. And then we're going to spend four weeks on Wednesday nights eating food together, doing the practicing the way stuff in prayer. And honestly, John Mark's stuff is always phenomenal. But this stuff on prayer, they really went next level. It is so well done, and it's just going to give you teeth. It's going to give you something to sink your teeth into. So four-week module, we're going to actually partner with Communion Church in that. So be sure to get registered. We're not sure what size population will be able to fit into those sessions. Wednesday nights, get signed up. Then at the end of October, uh, we're going to do our very first ever 24-hour prayer room. (laughs) 24-hour prayer room, we're just going to pray from 7 p.m. till 7 p.m. from a Friday to a Saturday night. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Those signups will be coming so that you can be sure to get that two o'clock in the morning spot. All right. Why all of this emphasis on prayer? Because rest as a way of being is rooted in deep, constant, trusting prayer. And resilience is fueled by deep, constant, trusting prayer. That's it. If we're not praying, we will never come to rest. And if we're not praying, we will not be resilient. We will find ourselves flailing about. So... With all that being said, has everybody got that class? New folks, you've got that. You kind of see the lay of the land where we've been. Two practices that we've introduced in 2023, Sabbath and prayer. We're going to be introducing seven more practices over the next three years, things like fasting, 
solitude, things like hospitality, uh, things like scripture reading. Those are going to be coming in the next year. Next year is going to be totally rad as well. But Sabbath and prayer for this year, we've covered a couple series that have intertwined and overlapped with each other. So we started by checking our cynicism. Let's just see how cynical we actually are in comparison to Koheleth and Ecclesiastes. And then we wove that into an entire summer of what does it look like to be a community resting with each other, learning to be resilient as we care for one another. And now we're going to spend all fall learning to pray from Jesus's most famous prayer. 20 more minutes to introduce the Our Father for us this morning. Everybody good? Shake it out. I know it's warm in here. Fall's coming. Hopefully it's going to start cooling down. Edward McKendry Bounds, uh, otherwise known as E.M. Bounds, he was a 19th century American clergyman. He was an author, uh, and he was a prominent figure in the Christian faith. And what E.M. Bounds is known most for is his writings on prayer. I cannot encourage you enough. Just get on Amazon, type in E.M. Bounds, and get any one of his little books on prayer. They're phenomenal. He's a very simple, easy-to-read writer. You can get through one of his books in an hour, and absolutely phenomenal writer on prayer. He said this, prayer, and it's, a bit, it's kind of a wordy quote, but Prayer in the moral government of God is as strong and far-reaching as the law of gravitation in the material world. And it is as necessary as gravity or gravitation to hold things in their proper atmosphere and in life. Therefore, we ought to thoroughly understand ourselves and understand also this great business of prayer. Let me just, let me just say Bounds a little more simply. Bounds believed that prayer was like gravity, that it held stuff together. Bounds believed that when we pray, the gravity that holds this solar system together was equal to that. That our prayer is what held together the purposes of God's will in this world, that it was infinitely strong, and it was always that prayer, like gravity, was constantly, whether you were conscious of it or not, always exerting its power upon that which was prayed for. So let me ask you guys, one of the most uncomfortable Christians Questions in the modern church for Christians. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? I'm trying to get eye contact with all you guys. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? It's funny in a room like this because it happens this way across the landscape of modern Christianity. When I ask, how's your prayer life? There's some of us, none of you in this room, thankfully, but there are some in the church in this moment, their eyes just roll. How's your prayer life? Look, for this person, they decided a long time ago that prayer is kind of one of those strange artifacts. It just happens to be left over in a modern culture. And modern culture long ago realized that the silliness of such superstitious behavior has been trumped by rationality, by empiricism, by the enlightenment, by science. Prayer has obviously been proven clearly ineffective, ineffectual, worthless. I roll, how's your prayer life? Should have expected it. I'm at church on Sunday morning. <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum, from the sort of jaded, cynical, empiricist, from the secularist for, who says the silliness of prayer is obviously ineffective, you've got the other side of the spectrum, and this was me 25 years ago. Your eyes brighten up. I remember realizing that Christians taught that you could talk to the God of the universe and that he heard you, and being utterly overwhelmed by the prospect of that. Utterly terrified, like I wasn't raised in the church. I had no context. And then people would bow their heads in prayer. And I would be like, these people are talking to the God of the universe. Why are they not scared out of their minds? And then the prayer time would come around. You guys know how in Christian circles, like Christians can read each other's minds and they know how when to do popcorn prayer? 
And I, I was utterly convinced that the Holy Spirit was speaking to them, and I just couldn't hear him. So I would sit there trembling like, I know I'm going to have to pray. I don't know when to pray. And then whenever somebody prayed over somebody else, I was like, they're obviously not listening to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but your eyes brighten. Oh, God, I pray that some of you this morning. I really do. That youthful baby-like, the Bible says, Jesus Christ says that when I talk out loud into the air, but I address myself to the God of the universe, he's hearing me and he responds. Well, that should, that should lift a room like this. 95% of you being believers. It should. Okay. For others, this is the majority of the, of the Western church. This is what I see all the time as a pastor. How's your prayer life? Shoulder slump, eyes kind of turned down in a way a little bit, and leaps to the fore, these narratives. Oh, you know what? I've tried prayer. I should pray more. I fail at prayer. I just can't pray. I don't know what to do. We feel ashamed and we feel humiliated when that question comes up in our lives. Now, here's one that I've sat in over the last 10 years or so that God is really beginning to renew. This person, how's your prayer life? And your eyes kind of wince. Like, that question hurts. It, 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 actually, it actually raises a host of points of pain. Because you, your prayers once were unquestioning. You were absolutely consistent. I can tell you as a 21-year-old kid, when I prayed, I believed the God of the universe was about to bend the will of all of humanity to do what I told God to do. I had no question. I had no question. But let me tell you, 25 years later, and many, many denials and unmet expectations and lost dreams and sitting in rooms of such horrific suffering, you do begin to give way to this hollow sense that maybe you're being ignored or passed over or maybe you just aren't praying right or maybe you're just not clean enough or pure enough and prayer has become for you possibly this morning a point of confusion, a point of frustration. How's your prayer life? And you wince and you say, it hurts. It hurts. I hurt. When you ask me how I pray, I hurt. I'm hurting. And then there's this group, this resurgence, this renewal. There's this, these pockets. They're popping up all over the country. I just got back from teaching at Western Seminary, teaching formation this week with a couple, the group of guys up there, and they're all leading these churches. And you're hearing these stories, these little pockets of community groups in their churches that are just breaking out in prayer and staying in prayer. And you ask, how's your prayer life? And there's a group of us in this room, most of us in this room, actually, where your eyes sort of all of a sudden go from pain to like, okay, I'm going to focus. And our bodies lean in a bit because no matter what, despite what modernity and shame and unanswered prayer have tried to convince us about the silliness or the impossibility or the ineffectiveness of prayer, for some reason, you and I, we just can't stop. And it's like, I can't stop wanting to pray and I've been trying to pray more and more. And this question, how's your prayer life, begins to stir like the tiniest little flame. And for me, that tiny little flame has become bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's slowly beginning to consume everything in me where I find myself saying, all I want to do is pray. We are ready. How's your prayer life? This is what the Holy Spirit is inviting all of us into through the fall. How's your prayer life? No matter your current response to the question, no matter where you find yourself in your journey with Jesus, God is coming to you saying, I want communion with you. I want you to know that I hear you. I want you to know that I respond to your prayers. I want you to once again feel the gravity of prayer, whether no matter where you are in, in your journey. 
And so when we begin to talk about prayer, we all begin to associate it immediately with requests and asks and words and conversation with God. And that is absolutely true, but it's all that and more. I'd like to propose something deeper as we get into our fall studies, that prayer is something that we can't actually measure and verify. Prayer is where heaven intersects with earth in our hearts and in creation. Prayer is where heaven intersects with earth and in our hearts and in creation. The Celtic mystics of the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries, they developed this idea of what they called the thin space. A thin space where the veil between heaven and earth thins, that's what prayer is for us. It's where the veil between heaven and earth thins. Prayer is actually the process. Now track with me here. Prayer is the process where the spiritual realities of heaven infiltrate the physical realities of the human heart and then penetrate the brokenness of this world. In prayer, eternity meets temporality. I feel like that little 21-year-old, brand-new baby Christian again, like, whoa. Like, it kind of makes you just stop. This morning, there was actually a word given in pre-gathering prayer about the length, the the breadth, the height of eternity, just this massive timelessness of God. And in a three-minute, our Father who art in heaven, all that eternity meets in that moment right there. It establishes God's will on earth as it is in heaven through our resulting beliefs and behaviors. What this means for us as we go through the fall and we approach prayer is that prayer is going to be, in one sense, immeasurable and intangible. Because you are trained in empiricism, meaning you want to be able to test and retest your hypothesis with clear, measurable evidence, Because we are people who say, God, when I come to you in prayer, I want data, I want metrics, I want evidence. As we go through the fall, we need to remember that the Lord is saying, I know you want all of that, but I want your heart. I want your heart. And I won't have your heart if you take me hostage and I give to you everything that you define for me as good. I'm not a genie in the bottle. The creator will not let the creature be his equal. So we approach prayer through the fall saying, okay, you want my heart? Then I want to give you my heart. So that question, if we relate that question to our heart, how's your prayer life? Then that means that for every single one of us, the Lord is actually asking, how's your prayer life? He's actually asking, how's your heart? Where's your heart? What is your heart devoted to? What are you in love with? What are you trusting? Why are you trusting that? Is it helping you? Is it hindering you? Is it harming you? Where's your heart? And Jesus says to our church this morning, I want your heart more than you've ever given it to me. The Lord is stirring this renewal that's being stirred, and he's wanting to meet his people in prayer. And yeah, he may throw us a bone. I'm praying, honestly, that all of us get thrown a bone through the fall, that you look up from your prayer time, and that afternoon you're like, whoa, that you pull into the movie theater on a Friday night. Lord God, please give me a parking place. Boom, you've got it. I pray that you guys get all of those things. I'm praying big, ridiculous, super scary, painful, vulnerable prayers. So are the brothers and sisters in this church. We all, we all are, because God wants our big, broken, vulnerable hearts to be his completely. And he does want to fulfill and surprise us, and he wants us. Now, I personally, out of my own journey, through these years of literal frustration and fear and denial, and also through the delights of prayer, I want to invite all of us together through the fall to join together in opening our hearts to the possibility. I'm not, I'm not saying just jump in. I'm saying the possibility of new faith, the possibility of new trust, the possibility of new hope in prayer. 
Don't you see how gentle that is? That's what he's done with me. He's never come to me and be like, you need to believe more. Just have hope. Just believe and pray. This, this, I don't know why I just got that. I don't know where that came from, dude. I don't know. I don't know, boys. I don't know where that came from. I just, the spirit comes to me and there's a gentleness where he's like, are you willing to even open your heart? Are you willing to even come close? Are you willing to have a, 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 an openness to this? And so I do believe God's doing something in this generation. So many that I've been meeting in the last few years have been expressing this renewed desire to pray and to pray well. And so let's reframe the question now as we get into this. Just another five or, five or ten minutes here. How's your prayer life? I want you guys to notice the pronoun there. How's your prayer life? Who's the focus? You guys can go. I'll go like this. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, good. Embodied action with each other. How's your prayer life? What that does, what that question does is it puts all the emphasis on you. Puts all the emphasis on your ability, on your integrity, on your faithfulness, on your strength. And that's not at all what the first century disciples asked Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they didn't say, hey, tell us or Look at how we're praying. Look at how much effort we're putting in. Look at how much discipline we're exerting. No, instead, they came to Jesus, and they saw Jesus praying. When the disciples saw Jesus praying, when they saw the Son of God, God embodied in flesh, living fully as a human, animated by the Holy Spirit, through the power of prayer, they were so moved by Jesus' prayer life that they simply asked him, Teach us to pray. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. That's the reframing of the question for the fall. That's the foundation. That's the foundational prayer that we're going to pray through the fall. Regardless of our current feelings and doubts and experiences with prayer, we want to redirect the focus from ourselves to Jesus. We want to redirect the focus from ourselves to Jesus. The disciples' request is actually a prayer in and of itself. And so if you're uncertain or unsettled or frustrated or fearful or even feel wounded by prayer, if you just don't even know where to start, let's just all start here. Let's all start here. Lord, teach me to pray. Lord, teach us to pray together. That's where we start. If you have nowhere else to go, no place to go, if you wince at that question, How's your prayer life? Just start here. Lord, just teach me to pray again. Lord, teach us to pray together. In Matthew's account, Jesus responds to the disciples' request, and he introduces this model of prayer in the context of other prayer points. Just briefly, when he introduces the Our Father, he introduces it, and he says, let our prayers be done in secret. So we'll learn secret prayer through this time. We're also going to learn public prayer through this time. He reminds them that they don't need to pile up words and use needless repetition like the pagans who think that more words are going to convince the deity to do as they will. And most importantly, Jesus sets this beginning journey into prayer saying, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father already knows that you're hurting. Your father knows you're frustrated. Your father knows your mistakes. Your father knows your personality. Your father knows your doubts, your worries, your hopes, your dreams, your, di your desires. He knows what you need before you ask him. And so our father meets us there as we say, okay, you know all these things. Stir me to pray because you know how to settle me. You know how to, quote unquote, prove to me that prayer works. And he asks us to surrender to his will. The problem with prayer, when we begin a journey into a series on prayer, is that we begin to define for God the standards of how we think prayer should be answered. And we don't get to do that. 
The very prayer itself, teach me to pray, means that he also has to teach us how to respond to the answers, perceived answers and perceived denials of prayer. Everything in prayer is an act of yielding and surrendering to God. And so, this morning, one last time, open up to the possibility that this fall, God has brought you here because he's been waiting for you, and now he is on tiptoe. Of, he's got anticipation. He's just standing on tiptoe in the heavens above saying, oh man, my kid's going to start praying again. I can't wait for this. I can't wait for this. The delight and the joy that the song of Zephaniah sung over you, the angels and the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he's like, they may catch a whisper of my delight in them in this next season, and he cannot wait. So as the disciples come, as you and I come together here on this Sunday morning, inclining our hearts, we all say, Lord, teach us to pray. And this is what he gives to us, this model, our Father in heaven. I'm not going to read it again. We'll read it there at the end. This prayer is short. It's 57 words in the original Greek, 53 words here in the NIV's translation. And that power will change the universe. It's a short punchy set of requests that can be memorized. So I really want to encourage you. We're going to memorize the NIV version. If you already have it memorized, just keep that locked in. But our goal is is going to be praying it throughout the day, throughout the fall. And then uh, we can also use it as a slowed down model of prayer. I began experimenting with this about a month ago, where I use each section of the prayer to expand my own personal prayer life. More on that as time goes on. This prayer is actually just pure petition. And John, you can just leave it up for a little bit here. What I mean is that there's, you guys notice here, there's no bookends of praise. Like you don't butter God up. Oh God, you are great. Oh God. Have you guys ever heard the, uh, the, the ways to pray sort of wheel, the wheel of prayer and you start with praise and then you go to confession? We actually do that on Sunday at pre-gathering prayer. But it kind of becomes this mechanistic model where like, okay, here's the key. I'm going to butter God up with my praise and then I'm going to confess so that, you know, I'm all clean. Then he has to hear me. And then I open up the gate and God just pours the blessing out. Did you guys notice this? There's just like, Dad, you're awesome. Do what you want. Give me something. That's it. (laughs) That's it. Oh, yeah, I messed up this week. Please forgive me. Oh, yeah, I got to forgive everybody else around me. Oh, man, there's a lot of evil in this world. Help me through that. That's it. It's so simple. It's just straightforward. No buttering God up. No unlocking the vault of his blessings. It is just, and this is why, (laughs) This prayer in the opening of the Our Father, it's scandalous. We'll talk in detail about that next week. But this prayer reduces us. It reduces all of our religiosity. It reduces all of our effort. And it takes us back to being like a little kid. Have you guys just watched this church for any given Sunday after the gathering? Watch how the the ones that are like hip and shorter approach their parents in prayer. Do they come up? Father, mother... Blessed be thy name. Glory and honor to you forever. No. They come up screaming. They come up, give me what I want. This prayer gives us that opportunity. This prayer is an invitation to just jump in like a little kid and pray with unchecked, unhindered audacity without even acknowledging the position of the parent, without even acknowledging or giving consent. It just goes in and asks. But simultaneously, this prayer is so rich, it reduces us to childlikeness, just a quick in-ask, but it also matures us. It draws us out of this self-focus. So where we're trying to get God to give us our way, this prayer matures us and causes us to look more like Jesus in our prayers. Uh, Gerhard Lofink says this, the Our Father is primarily a prayer for disciples, 
Every line is about disciples forgetting their own desires and plans for their lives. That's the opposite of childlikeness. That's maturity. Every line is about disciples forgetting their own desires and plans for their lives and desiring only what God wills. In that sense, it is a dangerous prayer for anyone who prays it. For many of us, this prayer is going to take us into uncharted waters this fall. Because we've approached God solely from the prayer of, here's my desire, here's my dream, here's my will, now do it in Jesus' name. That's good. You're praying. That's excellent. But the Our Father will begin to teach you to pray. As you saturate yourself in the Our Father, you begin to imitate the prayer life of Jesus. And the prayer life of Jesus was based on obedience to the Father. And the pinnacle of Jesus' prayer life wasn't life fulfillment. It was the night before the cross where he said, Father, your will be done, not my own. It's the ultimate expression of maturity in Christian prayer. I'm going to die. This is going to hurt. But I want your will more than I want my own. The our, Father, the our Father will take us there. I am so ready for this season in our life. And I think that the church, nationally in particular here in the United States, and, and really uh, Western modern culture is anticipating this. We're, we're feeling it. As we go through the Our Father, I want to give you guys some resources. Um, you can throw those up, John. Like I said, anything by E.M. Bounds uh, would be good for you to be reading along with this. Very simple, very encouraging. We're using a, a couple resource books. The Our Father, A New Reading by this German guy, Gerhard Lofink. Very simple. It's a little more exegetical. This is a little more, it's a very small book, but it's a little more academic for you guys that are into uh, biblical theology and things of that nature. How to Pray, Pete Gregg. And I'm going to mention one other book that's not up there. Pete Gregg's two books, How to Pray, and then the second book that I cannot recommend enough. It is the single best book I've ever read on unanswered prayer. And it's a book called God on Mute. Now, for most of you, How to Pray will be an encouragement. And God on Mute by Pete Gregg will be like, whoa, eye-opening on how to handle unanswered prayer. So these are the resources that we're going to be offering, not offering, but suggesting that you guys get as we go through this. Now, here's the last piece before we come to communion. This may be the one and only time ever in the history of Neighbors Church and ever in the future of Neighbors Church where I ask you to get your phone out. Get your phone out. We're going to do something. Go ahead and grab your phones. And open up to your timers or your alarms. Don't get on Instagram. So what I'd like us to do, and you don't have to do this, but I'd love for all of us to do this, is set an alarm for 12 p.m. So that every day and put it on repeat for every day, 12 p.m. Every day at 12 p.m., our alarms go off, and we just briefly, no matter where we are, on the freeway, sitting at work, in the middle of a conversation, in the, I just had this image of like, in the middle of this intense conversation with your boss, alarm goes off, you're like, hey, hold it, buddy, our Father, who art in heaven. I really, I really want us to do this. Um, 
And what it will do is it, it will build consistency. You know, the life of the church has been built around liturgy. We all have liturgy, but we don't, we only have Sunday mornings. I, I want us to experience, whoa. So like, if everybody in this room does this at 12 o'clock, the alarms are going to go off. And then all of us, you'll know, okay, right now, we're all praying to our Father together. And it doesn't need to be like, you know, the alarm goes off and then you're like, okay, here we go. No, like literally be like a kid. Alarm goes off at 12 o'clock. Our Father who art in heaven, I hallow your name alongside my brothers and sisters right now. We're all praying this together. Father, we bow before you. Let your kingdom come. Please, in Jesus' name, let your will be done in my friends and my family that's praying right now. On earth as it is in heaven, God, bring justice, bring mercy, bring glory, bring dignity to my friends that are praying. Bring dignity to this city. And each of us, respectively, in our pockets of influence, at 12 o'clock every day, hopefully all through the fall, right in the middle of work, give us today our daily provision. I pray for those that are in my church family that we would all be equal, that there would be nobody that has any lack in neighbor's church, and that that generosity would overflow out into our city. I pray that you would provide for the people. Provide for me. Lead us not into temptation, Lord. Forgive us as we forgive those who have trespassed against us and deliver us from evil. Now, do you think the Lord didn't hear it because I messed up the order? No. Some of you, you may just liturgically go through it. Some of you, you may be sitting right in the middle of work and you don't get to pray it out loud, but you can at least just pray it in your mind while you're doing whatever you're doing. 12 o'clock every day until Advent, and maybe we'll just, maybe we'll just keep this in there until the king returns. Can you guys imagine this? 12 o'clock, we all bow our heads. And at that point, you know, there's neighbors, communities spread all over the place. And we all bow our heads. 12 o'clock, our Father who art in heaven, we open our eyes. Boom. It's over. The king is there. It's done. Full rapture in that moment. Airplanes are falling out of the... Airplanes are... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just cannot stay serious. We're not going to take communion today because uh, we ran out. <laughs> and so, <laughs> such is life. But we are going to pray for each other. Um, my wife will lead us in a prayer meditation this morning. Would you all stand and let's, uh, let's sing. Everybody got your alarms?